You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. Got my co-host Eurosimos with me. Uh, we just wrapped up an amazing conversation with Paul Levy, who has done 30, 40 years of research into this whole concept of the Watiko mind virus and the way that, I guess, that plagues the collective and how we can begin to see it within ourselves and in the world um, and begin to change that trajectory. Right before we get into that conversation, we're moving towards the tail end of applications, not applications, of signups for the opportunity for you to join us for the next round of Rise Above the Herd. Um, So I think by now you guys know what that is. You know what it's about. Um, you know, it's, it's a call to, to heroism that lies deep within each and every single one of us. Um, and if that phone's ringing and if you feel like you're ready to answer that call, then head to riseaboveheherd.co and we'd love to help guide you through the process of really tapping into your deepest potential and just living life on your terms, walking that authentic path um, and bringing more wholeness, joy um, into your existence. So without further ado, guys, here is Paul. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. This is episode 141, and today we have Paul Levy in the house. He is a pioneer in the field of spiritual emergence. He is a wounded healer in private practice, assisting others who are also awakening to the dreamlike nature of reality. Among his books are the recently released Undreaming Watiko, Breaking the Spell of the Nightmare Mind Virus, Watiko, Healing the Mind Virus That Plagues Our Inner World, The Quantum Revelation, A Radical Synthesis of Science and Spirituality, and Dispelling Watiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil. He's the founder of the Awaken in the Dream community in Portland, Oregon, and he's an artist deeply steeped in the work of Carl Jung and has been a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner for almost 40 years. Paul, it's awesome to have you here. Thanks for being here for the truth. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Thank you. Man, one way we always like to kick this one off is I want to dive deep into your personal hero's journey a little bit. Like, What were some of the, I guess, major rites of passage and catalyzing moments of transformation that led you down this path? Yeah, no, I I appreciate that question a lot because my path is my own, like is everyone's, but mine was really unique or is really unique. And it creates the context for how I discovered my work. So I just was, you know, seemingly a happy, healthy kid, you know, with a normal childhood. And I'm an only child. And unbeknownst to me, my father, he just played the role. Like a lot of people who don't deal with their own abuse, they just, you know, unconsciously, compulsively enacted and transmitted to the next of kin. And that's what happened to me, particularly when I was, you know, in college and individuating and realizing I was a creative person and stepping out of the vision of the version of Paul that he wanted me to be, which was like the doctor lawyer. And here I was realizing, oh my God, I'm like, you know, we're all creative. And that's, I feel called to, you know, step into that vocation. And so I, you know, I don't need to go into the story, but he just, he, he saw, for whatever reason, that creative impulse in me as something that he needed to obliterate at all costs. And he he energetically played that out. And it just, 
the story isn't important. It's just it created enormous over-the-top suffering for me that I went from being a happy, healthy person to not being able to live my life. And this was, you know, I was in my early 20s. This was in 1980, 81, mm. something like that, late 70s through 81. And I dealt with it. I mean, it literally stopped me I from living my life. I was in so much pain. And I went inwards. And I assumed the position of the witness, really just doing spiritual practice meditation. I was such a beginner. And I went so deep inwards because it was the only thing that made me feel better that I had this, I got hit by a bolt of lightning one day in my brain, not from outside, went into an incredibly altered state in which I began to realize, oh my God, we're having a collective dream. This is, we're dreaming up this universe moment by moment. And I was so ecstatic. This was in 1981. I was 24 that um, I, you know, I freaked people out. It was like, from their point of view, I had had a radical personality change. And so right away I got thrown in mental hospitals and, and diagnosed, oh, you have this, this newly discovered chemical imbalance. You'll have this illness the rest of your life. You'll need to be on medication until your dying breath. And I knew it, it was made so clear to me that I was having an awakening. And that's what saved me. You know, I never bought in for even a nanosecond to the psychiatric, to their diagnosis of me. And actually, I was I was diagnosing them as being just, you know, really ignorant. And so then, but that really was intense because over the next, you know, one and a half years, maybe three, four or five times I was hospitalized because I was a free agent. I wasn't in a monastery or an ashram. And then the last hospitalization was in um, 1982. And then I got flown back from the Bay Area where I was living back to New York, given back to my parents which was a nightmare. And for that next 10 years or 12 years, I was just deeply, you know, going to therapy and connecting with my dreams and making art and doing plant medicine and studying shamanism and alchemy and Buddhism and anything and everything that could potentially help me. Because now I was doubly traumatized, not only from the abuse from my father, but the psychiatric abuse almost killed me. And then after, you know, in the early, probably 93, 94, I had realized, well, I'm not any enlightened person, but at least I had integrated what I have gone through sufficiently and realized the hospitalization, instead of being a mistake, that was part of my awakening. That was a descent into the shamanic underworld. So in 94, I think that's when I began teaching. And because um, I, I realized, oh, my God, I've been through this initiatory ordeal sort of like a shamanic initiation, and that I had some sort of gift to offer people and based on my own experience. And that's when I began teaching. And like they say, the rest is history. Yeah. It's a pretty incredible and just a, a perfect example of the hero's journey uh, in that moment where you, you you go to the underworld and you find your gift and you bring it back and you give it you give it to the world. So it's uh, incredible. I'm I'm just curious uh, as you progress through your life, was there any kind of reconciliation or or meeting or intimacy with your father again uh, uh, around no. anything? No, okay. No, my father died in in 2002. My mother died a few years earlier, and they were both completely under the psychiatric spell of oh yeah, your son has this mental illness and he's just in denial of the illness. And, and, you know, but right before he died, my father gave away half of the little inheritance. I was the executor and the sole inheritor. He gave away half of the inheritance to a woman he just met who was a millionaire. 
And, you know, it destroyed my relationship with my mother and we were so close, but she allied with my father protecting the abuser, which is typical. You know, I didn't understand any of this at the time, but more and more I, I was realizing, oh my God, this is showing me something. This is a deeper archetypal patterning or process that happens when there's abuse in the field. And when somebody was shedding light on the abuse, which was me, they get demonized and they get seen to be the problem. And so, yeah, there was no reconciliation at all. And once my my last parent died in 2002, the rest of the relatives, basically, they never spoke to me again. I got, because my father wrote the story, you know, because in, in the world, you know, in the mundane world, he was seen as just a normal, ordinary person. But, you know, I experienced, you know, his dark side and it almost killed me and it killed my mother. And so all the relatives got entranced thinking I was the problem. And so I haven't had a family for like over 20 years, but I'm all good. I mean, I have a huge yeah. soul family, a lot of friends. Yeah. And, but yeah, no, it was, um, there was no reconciliation at all. Yeah. It, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. What, um, I know you're a big fan of Young. When did you first get exposed to him and, and what impact has he had on you and his work? Young. So, so, um, I was always intimidated by Young. And and then when I got out of that last hospital in 82, I I found a book that talked about, oh, there was this like librarian at the Young Foundation in New York who was like a bibliotherapist. You would go to her and tell her what you were interested in about Young or dreams you've had. And she would show you not only the books, but the chapters in the books to read. Wow. And I went there and I had never been to the Young Foundation and we became fast friends. And I went there every week and was telling her the dreams I had or what I was interested in. And she would absolutely, like the book had said, show me exactly what books and what chapters and what pages to look at. And that's how I learned young. And then I was there so often, you know, and every week I would come back and give the five books back that she had recommended that I read. And she'd give me five more books. And that went on for years and they all got to know me. And then they asked me to, to be the bookstore manager. And which to me was fantastic because then I was ordering my, my customers were the analysts, the people studying to be Jungian analysts, and I would get their reading list and I would just read all the books myself. So I'm totally self-taught and young, but why he was so important to me, I mean, he's my main man. He saved my life yeah. in that in young, I found somebody who was articulating and speaking out of the same experiences that I began having because I was having these completely paranormal out of the ordinary experiences it was like I had a quantum jump from the the ordinary mundane world to a universe that looked exactly the same, but it was filled with magic and synchronicity and healing. And once I found Young, it was such a relief to find somebody who, oh, he's actually, you know, speaking, you know, and articulating the same realm that I had found myself in. And so I still study him, you know, every day for 40 years. And, um, you know, he really saved my life. That's amazing. Um, okay. Obviously you've written, you know, endlessly, um, in regards to the Wetiko mind virus. So I guess, um, it's only right that we try to, I guess, get to what that is for our audience and on a base level, then we'll go from there. Could you, could you give us some kind of, I guess, sure. basic understanding for people who are brand new to this concept? As yeah, well? yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, so the the Watiko idea, it's a Native American idea, an indigenous idea, and it, it connotes this virus of the mind. 
And they also talk about it being like a cannibalistic spirit or like a vampire or like a mind parasite. And so all I am, I'm just a translator. I'm just translating this indigenous wisdom into a modern day psychological idiom. And so I think it's, and keep in mind, it's not just Native American, every spiritual tradition in the Bible they had in the apocryphal text, they talk about the the counterfeiting spirit. That's what you go. And, you know, it has no creativity at all on its own, but it plugs into our creativity that we're not consciously expressing and it turns our own creativity against us. But what Tico is being a counterfeiting spirit, it's it's a master mime. It's an incredible impersonator. So it puts us on, it fools us, offers us this false image of who we are. Oh, I'm limited, I'm traumatized, I'm wounded. And if we're not awake, we then identify with its version of who we are, and then it has us. Then it can control us, manipulate us. But as long as we're in touch with our nature, with who we actually are, it has no currency on us at all. And if you think about what I'm describing, so here we actually, you see, Watiko can't steal our soul, but it tricks us into giving it away. And then we identify with who we're not, and then we forget who we actually are. And then we we disconnect from our creative power, our intrinsic creative agency. That's a recipe for madness. That's Watiko in a nutshell. And if, if I can just elaborate a little bit, it yeah. operates through the blind spots of the unconscious, through the projective tendencies of the mind. And we're always projecting, just like a dream. What is a dream? But a projection, we connect the inkblot on the waking dream in such a way that we interpret it and, and have meaning that we superimpose on it in such a way that if we're not awake to that, we're participating in that, we entrance ourselves. We literally hypnotize ourselves mm-hmm. via our own creative genius. That's what Tico. And but the final thing, I mean, I could write a book. I've already written three. Yeah. I'm already starting my fourth on Watiko, because it's like it's like tapping into this endless stream. But Watiko, I point out, is a quantum phenomena. And what I mean, just like you know, what it, here's like light. What is the nature of light? Well, quantum fit quantum physics it discovered. Well, it manifests either as a wave or a particle, which is or completely mutually exclusive. And yet, how it manifests as a wave or a particle depends on how we observe it. The same thing with Watiko being a quantum phenomena, there's a superposition of states. It's the source of the greatest evil that we enact individually in relationship and collectively and encoded within the seeming pathogen is not only its own vaccine and its own cure, but it's actually catalyzing us and helping us to awaken and to evolve. So right there, it has the opposites hidden and coded within it, and how it will manifest. Is it going to take us down and kill us, or is it going to wake us up? That depends on us, because Watiko is a revelation. I mean, this is like, you know, the major part of my work is that here's this thing, which is this pathogen, the source of evil, and it's a revelation. And this is exactly what Jung says. Jung is pointing out that God placed in evil a special purpose, you know, and uh, he again and again is pointing out the incredible importance of shedding light on the darkness. He has that famous quote, the idea of becoming enlightened isn't by just doing this visualization of figures of light, but no, it's by making the darkness conscious. That's in essence what I'm pointing out. There's a figure that there's an energy in the psyche that is seemingly resisting any impulse in us to be ourselves and be creative and connect with our light. 
And so it's not just that our species has fallen asleep, but there's this malevolent factor or a seeming malevolent factor that's invested in keeping us asleep. And that exists within the psyche. And that's what Tico, and that's what my whole work is about. And just finally, if people think, oh, what Tico, uh, the idea of a mind virus that's woo and new agey sounds crazy. All that it means is that the source and the solution of our collective madness is to be found within the human psyche. And that's a no-brainer. Where else could the source of our madness be found? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the way that you've broken that down, Justin. Because one of the things that I was challenged with in, you know, I've already just kind of begin to begin to find my way around um, this concept is I found that, you know, often you might discuss that as like a separate individual entity with its own consciousness and like that can just like attack or is it I, manifesting from within? You know, that's that's where I wasn't. Um, yeah. And if I could just say something about that, because if people hear you yeah. talking about there's a mind virus and they get into fear, yeah. no, that's that's not it at all. Because what Tico feeds off of fear, yeah. fear is the superfood for Watiko. Watiko doesn't even exist. There is no such thing as Watiko at all. It is no independent existence whatsoever. In Buddhism, it's called emptiness. And but there's no independent existence whatsoever separate from our own mind. Right. So there's nothing to be afraid of. And yet, if we don't recognize it and come to terms with it, it's going to kill us. You see, that's the paradox. It both exists and it doesn't exist. So it involves like having this higher form of like this logic. In quantum physics, they talk about four-valued logic, which is in Buddhism too, and in dreaming, with things instead of is A or B true. And even though they're contradictory, it's like, no, A and B can be true. So here, Watiko, we subjectively experience it in our mind as if it's an alien other, right? As if it's a seeming entity. And yet, ultimately, it has no independent existence separate from our own mind, you know? And that's the paradox. If you can embrace that, then you're on the road to coming to terms with Watiko. Yeah. Do you think it's imperative that an individual has to do shadow work, has to get in touch with uh, these darker elements within themselves in order to recognize um, the potential for Watiko to to take over? Yeah, I don't see any other way, you know, and and the shadow, you know, there's a personal aspect and then the, there's the archetypal aspect. And one way of describing, you know, the very first question when I talked a little bit about my own experience you know, one way of describing it was I was having a, this direct, like a close encounter of the Watiko kind. I was having a direct close encounter with archetypal evil and not just the personal dimension of evil, but, you know, the archetypal dimension of the shadow. And what I began to see was that, oh my God, the same evil that had seemingly possessed my father and he unwittingly, because he was oblivious, like anybody would be, that he had, you know, was taken over by this higher dimensional archetypal transpersonal force that he was just the instrument for. Then I began to recognize, oh my God, not just the person of my father, but this system of psychiatry, it had changed channels that evil force now was coming through the psychiatric system. And then I began to recognize, oh my God, that's the same evil that's coming through the greater body politic of our species. Uh -huh. and, and then I began to realize, oh, and that's reflecting something in me. As long as I externalize and think, oh, they have Artico and all oh, my father's the bad one. Well, then by having that perspective of seeing through the lens of the separate self, I'm falling under the thrall and the spell of Wotiko. The idea is, is, is to recognize we're not separate. 
And I don't see any way that we can get to that realization of our interconnectedness and of our true nature without coming to terms with the shadow. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, is, is Watiko like a spectrum? Like can someone be taken by, by Watiko to a degree or is it? Yeah. Well, think about it this way, that Watiko exists in the collective unconscious of our species, which is which means that any of us at any moment could fall asleep. I mean, who among us hasn't acted out our unconscious in a yes. way that's destructive towards others, towards ourselves? You know, so we all potentially have Watiko. If somebody says, no, no, I'm free of Watiko, I'm over it, you know, I run the other way because that's yeah. dangerous to me because in that unconscious state of mind, they're offering themselves to, in you know, in an unconscious, unwitting way to act it out. Yeah, so we all potentially have that and that's where you develop the the mindfulness. That's the and the and the humility, and that's the inoculation of having the realization. You see, the thing about Watiko, it's non-local, and what that means—that's a physics term where instead of it just being in third-dimensional space and time, no, it transcends the third-dimensional laws of space and time, such that it's everywhere and anywhere, and can happen at any moment. And so when you see Watiko out there, oh, say if somebody, so at any moment, any of us could be possessed by it and act it out and become a vector or a conduit, an instrument to act it out. But then being non-local, when we see somebody who's doing that, it's impossible, similar to how it's impossible to see the unconscious in someone and not have your unconscious activated. That's the non-local aspect of the unconscious. Same thing with Watiko. When you see somebody who's like taken over and acting out Watiko, it's impossible for the Watiko and you to not get activated. But then if you actually self-reflect on, oh, what in me is just being triggered right now, then when you metabolize that, then you're able to deal with it in a helpful way. But if you then get triggered by seeing Watiko and then you have all this, for example, righteousness or whatever, or judgment, oh, they have Watiko, and then you're seeing through the lens of Watiko. Then you're just as much feeding the bug as they are. So is this like, would you say, like the innate friction or innate evil, like built into creation that ultimately gives rise to growth and evolution, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. That's a great way of saying it. And, you know, because like I was saying, every spiritual tradition from time immemorial has been pointing at Watiko in their own way. And, you know, like, for example, um, in in the Kabbalah, they'll talk about, you know, that evil is a part of the Godhead and that the way to really discover the, the real light is that it's hidden within evil. And, um, you know, and I think about going back to the collected works of Jung again and again, he's pointing at that we need to come to terms with evil, that evil is a real player, that it's striding the world stage and it's a great power. And one of the big mistakes, I see a lot of really well-intentioned, good, loving, intelligent, you know, new age people make is that, oh no, I don't want to put any of my energy on the darkness. I just mm -hmm. want to be all love and light. And what they don't realize is that they're avoiding relationship with a part of themselves. And, and that's exactly by turning a blind eye to Watiko because Watiko is a form of blindness, but it's a form of blindness. It's a peculiar form of blindness that actually thinks that it's sighted. And so when we turn that blind eye going, no, 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 I just want to like invest my energy in love and light. 
well, by avoiding relationship, you're unwittingly feeding Watiko. Yeah. yeah so you're absolutely right. That, you know, that evil is somehow, you know, I guess the way I see it is that we wouldn't be able to have the realization of our freedom, of our true nature without evil. It's actually helping us. And a perfect example is the Buddha under the Bodhi tree meditating right before he became enlightened. What happened? All the darker forces, the evil forces were trying to like, you know, torment him and seduce him and and all that. And on one hand, it seems like, oh, they were against Buddha. But no, they were secretly his allies. They were helping him. They catapulted him into realization. They helped him to develop the muscle of realization. So they were secretly his allies. Yeah. Yeah. So I totally hear you. It's it's a very grounding force as well. You know, it's to me like even the, the great Jung quote, no tree can grow to heaven that doesn't have roots in hell. You know, it's it's almost like the soil right. necessary to, to like ground us into this experience. Exactly. Exactly. And But there's a great danger. Because so I had this, like I was saying, this, you know, direct encounter with archetypal evil that, you know, just blew my mind. It, it, it changed the whole trajectory of my life. And yet there's a danger because the danger is, you know, I know people who um, are investing their lives with fighting against evil and I have to kill Satan. And unwittingly by doing that, you know, they've become possessed by the very evil they're trying to destroy. So, you know, that's one of the dangers um, is to concretize evil as being real in a certain way that it's not, or to unconsciously identify with it and unwittingly act it out. But the key thing is, is that it can really help you to develop compassion, you know, because compassion, that is our nature. You know, I, I talk about, because it's such a cliche when, you know, people say, oh, just remember who you are, connect with your nature. Well, what is our nature? You know, when I point to, well, our true nature has to do with compassion, with love, with creativity. And when you realize your nature, then you embody that love and compassion and creativity. And the more you embody it and express it, the deep it deepens your experience and realization of your nature in a positive feedback loop. So that's why I continually talk about not only the importance of love and compassion, but being creative. Because what Tico plugs into our unconscious creativity and turns it against us, because it has no creative, no creativity. But as any of us actually connect with our creative nature, which is our true nature, that's kryptonite to what Tico. Yeah, I think this is why shadow work. I can only speak personally uh, from my own experience. Is that the more I've tapped into these elements of myself that would be considered darker. Um, or things that were repressed in my life, I I tend to just have more compassion because when I see it in the other, I know, okay, well, I have the potential for that. I have the capability to to behave in that way. And I think this is where an expanded consciousness comes into play is where you ultimately have a choice. It's like standing between the tension of opposites and hopefully choosing a more compassionate, loving uh, response. Right. No, that's exactly right. So that's in distinction to when we're unconscious of the darkness, then we're fated to compulsively act it out. You know, that's the way it works. But then when you're aware of the darkness in you, and that's the best way of actually how to deal with the darkness in the world is first becoming aware of your own shadow. Then when you're aware of darkness in you, then you can take a stance to it. You can actually distinguish yourself from it. And, um, you know, and then all of a sudden, instead of just being compelled to act it out, you're more a choice, exactly like you're saying. And the thing I should say about this Watiko idea, and you know, how it's 
not only every spiritual tradition, but visionary thinkers and philosophers and artists, they're all pointing at it just in different ways. And I just wanted to mention one, like in the Castaneda books, you know, Carlos's teacher says to Carlos, he doesn't use the word, he doesn't have the name, you know, uh, Watiko idea, but he calls the same thing, the predator. And he mm -hmm. says, this is the topic of topics. Mm -hmm. And I just want to emphasize and highlight that because this mind virus is at the bottom, not only of, you know, of any of us, all of us are struggling with addictions or habitual patterns or, oh, we're in trauma. And I'm happy to talk about that. But it's this what Tico mind virus is at the bottom, at the very root of the insanity that we're playing out in the world, because what Tico is a collective psychosis. And this is the thing that Jung kept on. He would warn us about again and again. The great danger is for millions of us to fall into a collective psychosis. And that's exactly what's happened. And, you know, so but the idea is, is that unless we get to the root of what's actually at the bottom of our madness, that it's to be found within us, within our psyche. And what Jung also says is that the way to deal with this is individually, on the individual level, any one of us, you know, really seeing their shadow, coming to terms with Watiko, awakening to the dreamlike nature. There are a lot of ways of saying the same thing. That might be, because he keeps on, he has a favorite image of when you when you have grains of sugar and you dissolve them in a glass of water, they dissolve and dissolve, and then it reaches a saturation point, and you add one more grain of sugar and a crystal will manifest. He says that's analogous to the way that symbols manifest in the unconscious, but that also is the way any one of us having realization in this moment could be that grain of sugar that catalyzes an awakening in the entire collective consciousness of our species. Yeah, it's an yeah. extremely, uh, it's just an, an individual act. The individuation process is, is so important for the change to happen. I think sometimes get confused. They think, oh, we need to change things on the collective, you know, as opposed to starting like starting with the individual and then that shifts the collective. That's just my view. Right, because we're part of the collective. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think about me, like, you know, when I was in college, you know, I was a really good student, but my worst subject, I couldn't write to save my life. And now here it is, I'm like a mm -hmm. writer and people all over the world studying my stuff. And yeah, I wasn't interested in what I was being forced to write about in school. And, you know, when I connected with what was passionate to me, I found my voice. And that's where you see, okay, right before the lockdown, I had finished one of the chapters in my current book, and it's the biggest chapter, and it's all about that we're all shamans in training. And a shaman is the wounded healer. And I, I just never identified myself as being a healer, but when I came across, oh, the wounded healer idea, I was like, oh, yeah, I can relate to that because I'm so in touch with my wound. But the I, idea is, and this was, little did I realize that I was sort of like, tapping into something because it I finished the chapter right before the lockdown and I was pointing out that our species is going through a collective shamanic initiatory process which is really this death sort of rebirth where we're descending into the darkness of the unconscious and you know and the danger is to get stuck in that but the shamanic archetype is the shaman if they go through that experience and they're able to bring back gifts and a shaman is nothing other than the creative artist and that's why the profound importance, we all have a particular calling, whatever that is. And, and I'm, I'm kind of talking out of my own experience, 
you know, I was fortunate enough for whatever reason to have whatever the courage or the blessing to, to really follow my calling. And as I've done that and written my books and all that, it's helping me to heal and it's helping other people. And, and that's really what's being offered for all of us. We all have a particular calling or, you know, whatever, there's this, this role to play in the deeper dream. And we're just, you know, really being invited to step into our courage and to incarnate that calling and to step into our vocation. And that really involves finding our inner genius, our guidance. This is what Jung was after in his therapy, was to connect people with their inner guide. And if you do that, then you've tapped into the creative source. But if you don't do that out of fear, or I'm not good enough, or whatever story, that like inner guide, which Jung would call the daimon, it's the guiding spirit, consolates negatively and becomes a demon. And that's what he called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Incredibly well said. Besides learning so many new truths that I never could have anticipated, the best thing for me about Wrath was clearing 16 years of monthly hormonal migraines using some of the healing techniques that I learned in Wrath, for which I am internally grateful and made the course so invaluable to me. Thanks, guys. Shadow work, self-esteem, financial empowerment, nervous system regulation, individualism. These are just a few of the many topics that we take a deep dive and excavation into in our eight-week transformational group coaching program for truth seekers, Rise Above the Herd. To learn more or to join today, head to riseaboveTheHerd.co. And like, even like when you think about like the greatest works of art, the greatest books ever written, you know, they've all been grounded in some kind of element of darkness like you can tell the creator or the, or the author or the painter is in touch with their shadow and it adds an incredible depth and richness to the creativity that's being output as well as opposed to merely like you know shallowness yeah no that's absolutely right and um i hope that comes through in my work because you know i'm not just writing these books about this mind virus and evil as an academic or a scholar or a philosopher in my like white tower no, I've been on the front lines, you know, 24-7 for 40 plus years. And, you know, like I said, it destroyed my entire family. And yet I've been able to sort of to alchemize this energy and turn it into create into creativity, into medicine. And and in a way, that's really the shamanic, you know, archetype. And if, if I could just say one more thing about this mm-hmm. particular process, because the shaman you know, and I'm in no way saying I'm a shaman. I, I joke with my friends, no, only in my in my wildest dreams am I a shaman. But, you know, the shamanic archetype was activated in me and it's activated in all of us. And what the shamanic archetype has to do with, the shaman is typically somebody very empathic and sensitive. So if they're working with a client or with the community, you know, they will, because of their empathy, they will take on the illness. And that has a double meaning. Taking it on means to have it out with, to wrestle with, but taking it on means to take it within themselves and they fall ill. And that's a profoundly important part of the whole shamanic process. But if they stay ill, then they need a shaman and they can't help anybody else. But the idea is they take that occasion of falling ill and experiencing the illness that the client or the community is suffering from as the occasion to have that pain and suffering and illness 
be the occasion to even more deeply connect with who they are, with their wholeness. And by doing that, energetically, non-locally, they're making it more probable that the client or the community will find their way back to their wholeness because they're like modeling it in the collective unconscious. And um, and this is what I'm describing. This is a way of understanding what's happening in our world. We've all been sickened by the collective insanity that we're all dreaming up. So from that point of view, we're all shamans in training. And if we're able to take whatever has gotten disturbed in us and, and have that help us to more deeply connect with our creative spirit, then we actually are embodying the archetype of the shaman and, and in a way helping the non-local field. And this is, you know, I'm describing something that's available for all of us, but they say if the shaman, if they don't accept their calling, that's when they really get sick and and can really die. And, and there are two great dangers in shamanism. You know, one is somebody has a little bit of experience with shamanism where they take psychedelics and they have a little bit of a awareness and then they put a shingle on their, oh, I'm a shaman and they could do such damage to people. The other great danger is to stay unconscious of our shamanic abilities when it's like a natural, like evolutionary process for us to connect with our shamanic abilities of being creative. Yeah, I think that's one of the dangers of, as psychedelics have gotten a little bit more uh, popularized in certain ways is that I live in Los Angeles. So, you know, I'm surrounded by individuals who will go into the Amazon for a week and then come back and be like, I'm a shaman. You know, because, right, right. because they've had an experience and it's like, you know, and then they'll identify as that. And then they'll do like you say, oh, I'm not a shaman, but like you'll introduce, you'll meet them and they'll be like, oh, I'm a shaman. And I'm like, you're like 22 years old and you went right. to Peru for a weekend. Like, right. OK, take it easy. <laughs> but yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. No, totally. Yeah, yeah. No. And that's one of the great that's one of the shadow aspects of the whole like plant medicine, psychedelic community. I mean, it greatly concerns me because I'm a big advocate for plant medicine. Yeah. I mean, it's helped me in my life. And yet, you know, that's one of, of many shadow elements yeah. in the community. You know? Well, in, in your like experience in 30 years, you've been writing about this stuff. And this is something we talk about or we try to decipher is, do you find common denominators uh, within individuals, groups, people that are more likely to get taken over by Wetiko or to believe like, a lot of the the mainstream propaganda that's being pushed out. Like, what what do you think it is that uh, causes an individual to could fall under these spells? Right. Well, it is exactly like a spell, and I I love that question because I've been tracking. You know, I really study as much as I can. I go down the rabbit hole trying to understand what's happening in our world, and I feel like really grateful that I've snapped out of the mainstream spell to whatever degree I have. And, and I've, I've realized there's a correlation when I meet somebody who's like, you know, a new age person, spiritual person, really good, bright, intelligent, well-meaning person, and they're totally under the propaganda of the mainstream media, that to me, that's a reflection of their inner spiritual process. That's showing me, well, they're not as awake as they think they are. And on the one hand, you know, your question, well, how come that is, or what is the factor that contributes to that? On the one hand, I think it's people just outsource their own authority, their own sense-making and meaning-making to like, oh, the New York Times or the Washington Post or NPR or whatever, instead of like staying with their own experience. And, you know, because our species is really like we have, we're so open, we're prone to the suggestions mm -hmm. and to taking on other people's version 
you know, of what they say is true, particularly if there's like millions of people are all in agreement, there's an unconscious assumption, well, it must be true. And then when once you're in that echo chamber of your own mind, you just get endless evidence confirming the truth of your viewpoint. And part of it is they people get fixed in a particular viewpoint of, oh, this is what's true, and I'm in possession of the truth. And I point out that none of us are in a position to to really know what's actually true. You know, I mean, there are people who do a lot of research and are way closer to what's actually happening and more probable that what they're seeing might be more accurate. So I just continually advocate having what I call this omniperspectival awareness. Instead of just seeing things through one, you know, one like degree on the circle, which has 360 degrees and thinking, oh, I'm in possession of the truth and I'm what I'm seeing is true. You know, I'm in possession of the truth to actually contemplate stuff from as many from all 360 degrees. And that's a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. But like so many people, you know, part of what happens is, you know, the idea that it's, it's way harder to snap somebody out of their bamboozlement than to bamboozle them in the first place. It's like a trauma. So there's a counter incentive when somebody's drank the Kool-Aid and you try to reflect to them, oh, you've fallen under a spell. It brings up such pain for them to realize that that's happened. And then it pulls the rug out from what they think the world is, that there's a counter incentive for them to self-reflect. You know, and there are people who do that, but it takes enormous courage. And, and I just wrote an article. It's on my website. You know, the invasion of the body snatchers comes to life, and and I point out, yeah, that people who have drank the Kool Aid and fallen under the spell, it's like they're not even home. They're just parroting the algorithm. They're parroting the propaganda, and they have all the evidence they need of the truth of it because so many other people are in agreement, and the media, the mainstream media is providing all the evidence, and it's exactly like a collective spell. So then the question becomes, how do we, how does each one of us, how do we intervene in that collective dreaming process in a way that's going to help to wake people up from the spell? Yeah. You know, that's that's the real question. Yeah. Uh, awesome article, by the way. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, like, thank you. In, in, in my experience, like the one thing that seemingly gives rise to most of this like unconsciousness or like, you know, collective psychosis it comes down to like an aversion of pain, like a refusal to experience legitimate suffering, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's such a great, you know, um, idea. There's a, there's this great, um, you know, he was a priest in in Germany in World War II, um, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. And he had escaped Germany, but he felt he was such a bodhisattva. He felt, no, it's my role to minister to the, my people. So he went back into Nazi Germany and then he got executed by the Nazis a few weeks before liberation. And he has a beautiful quote I quote in my book, and it, this is a paraphrase. He says, when we voluntarily choose to experience pain, that spells death to evil. You know, And I love that he says it that way. And this, of course, brings up like, yeah, a lot of people, there's like suffering. And I want to just to differentiate, there's like the neurotic, unproductive suffering, like a hamster cage where we are continually trying to get away from your suffering. And the way you're doing that is creating the suffering. And it's like, you're just re-traumatizing yourself and there is no benefit to that. That's a feedback loop that can unfortunately take up a whole person's life. Then there's like the suffering, the Christian mystics talk about, yeah, suffering coming from God, which is actually like 24 karat gold. It's like refining you in the furnace, in the heat. 
And it's actually a blessing. And that's the legitimate suffering that Jung was talking about, that yeah. how profoundly important it is to legitimately suffer. Yeah. Like, I mean, when, when, you, when you genuinely fuck up, when you genuinely do wrong by somebody, when like you, it's like being able to actually be like, oh, okay, you know, I, I screwed up there. And there's a, there's a consequence and a cost that comes with that. But being open to having that experience, you know, just, it just adds so much richness to who you are as a human being in, in being able to meet that because no one can ever avoid that. You know, none of us are here as perfect human beings. We're all here to right. learn. We're all walking a path. And the more authentic path you walk, the more walls you're going to bump into as well, you know, because someone else hasn't pre-carved that road for you. And it's like, are you willing to grow? Are you willing to learn from your mistakes? And to me, that's what it is to, to, to experience legitimate suffering. Yeah, that, that's so beautiful. And it makes me think of like, this ties back to like owning the shadow and, mm -hmm. and all that. And just like owning your stuff and, and realizing, yeah. yeah, I fucked up and, you know, I own that. And the point I want to make is that um, when we, in a genuine way, own our, you know, shadow, our own darkness, you know, because young and not just young, so many great thinkers talk about we all can be a potential criminal or murderer under the right mm -hmm. circumstances. We share in the in the, the the black collective shadow. I think that's Young's phrase of of humanity. And but when we own that, and not just the idea of our shadow, it's easy just to like, oh yes, I've seen my shadow, and and it easily becomes an idea, which is an evasion of because it's a moral problem. When you realize, wow, I have a darkness, and I mm -hmm. had no idea that I can fool myself. Which interesting in my article, I point out that Jung talks about pulling the wool over one's own eyes as a form of black magic. And we're all like these geniuses at fooling ourselves yeah. and being in denial that we're in denial. And then we're invested in keeping our denial in the crypt of our unconscious. And that just, you know, creates poison. But the point is, instead of just seeing your shadow as an idea, but you have a living experience, you know, which is painful of, you know, really coming to terms with your shadow that then paradoxically more deeply connects you with your light, with the goodness in you. Yeah, I, I would have to say a huge, huge impact on my life was in my mid-20s, uh, I was acting in New York City and my teacher was heavily influenced by Jung and different psychologists. And just by doing this type of work and shadow work and really tapping into these parts of me and being like, oh, whoa, and like expanding your consciousness, expanding your imagination and having these thoughts and these qualities within you come out and being like, well, this is a part of me that really just, I don't know, just changed me. It just changed me on on, right. on the deepest levels. And I think it also relates to a line that you you wrote in your uh, in your article, I think, where you said evil needs groups of people to effectively spread itself. So if people yeah. aren't doing this kind of work, you know, if they're not doing this level of work, if they're not tapping into uh, these dark parts of them or facing it head on, then they're more likely to be the spreaders, the spreaders of, of this. Yeah. And they're, and like they become secret agents and their secret is secret even to themselves. They have no idea because when, you know, going back to the work of Jung, he says, yeah, this is the most invisible experience of all. When we're unconsciously identified, say, oh no, I'm a good, kind person mm -hmm. filled with love and light. And meanwhile, you know, it's so one sided that, you know, one shadow then, acts itself out through you where you become the instrument for that darkness to act out. And that's how evil propagates. And interestingly, you know, when I the first chapter of my new book, I point out that, in my opinion, the origin of what you call mind virus is unhealed ancestral multi-generational trauma. 
you know, we all know that to the extent that we don't, you know, heal the trauma that was given to us by our parents, we just compulsively can't help. We're fated to pass it on to our kids. And and that's just, you know, and, and what Jung says is evil regenerates itself over the generations. That's what he's pointing at. And, you know, and the thing about the Watiko mind virus, the evil aspect of it is that it's contagious. You know, if somebody is a carrier of it, and then, like I say, you get into contact with them and it's non-local, so you become activated even in your unconscious when you see it, even if it's not conscious, if you don't metabolize what's gotten activated in you, then you've caught the bug. And then, you know, you're going to just propagate it on your next of kin. And so that's where it becomes a collective psychosis. And that's where evil, you see, how I saw this was like that I, going back to my story, my own story with my family, it was like in the Petri dish of my family, there was this pathogen that came in and the vector was my father, but that was just a role. But then I saw how, oh, my mother, who I was so close with, she protected my father. And then psychiatrists who were supposed to, you know, be on the service, in the service of healing, they protected the abuser. And I realized, wait a second, there's a non-local field which is informing everybody's reaction and response. And, um, you know, and that's how the bug was propagating. And it took down and destroyed my entire family. And that's when I began to realize, oh my God, evil, it really needs, you know, not just one person, but like yeah. a group of people to really propagate and to replicate itself. Yeah, I think I think that for me the contagion factor comes in because the refusal to see or acknowledge darkness and evil is far easier than than than, than its opposite. So it just continues along the path, you know. Oh no, nah, they they didn't mean anything wrong by that next family member. Then comes in to protect them. Oh no, I don't want to see that either. He was fine. Don't worry about this. Look the other way. And it's just far easier. It's a far quicker thing. To right. Occur. Yeah. Right. And them doing that, you know, because that's what I call like protect, you know, protecting the abuser. It's a non-local protection racket. That's a reflection of how they're looking away from the evil in themselves. Yes. Here yes. it is playing out there. And so, and that's the thing about Watiko. You see, it's an inner disease of the soul that actually in a magical way can extend itself out in the world and somehow reveal and express itself through the medium of the outside world in a synchronistic way. And that's amazing because what I'm saying is that here is an inner disease of the soul, the mind virus, that actually where the inner state of a psyche under its thrall gets enacted and played out through outer events in the world. So the inner is actually, or the macrocosm is is mirroring the, you know, the inner or the microcosm. That's an expression, that's a description of a dream. Just think about a dream. You're in a dream. And the outer, you know, dream world you're in is an expression, a reflection of the inner state of the dreamer. So that's why I continually talk about when we begin to see the dreamlike nature. This was the realization that I was having when I got locked up the first time because I was so ecstatic at what I was realizing. Oh my God, we're interconnected. I was stepping out of the viewpoint of the separate self because Watiko, in essence, is the separate self. And and as soon as I identify with the separate self. Then reciprocally co-arising with that is the idea that the world is objective, separate from me. And that idea of a world being objective and me being a subjective ego, they you know, reciprocally reinforce each other. That's the illusion that I'm trying to help people to see through. And um, and then you know, you connect with, oh wow, we're actually interdependent and interconnected. 
we're like cells in a greater organism and we can actually get in phase and help each other. Like oh, what, a, what a radical idea. And that's what's available to us in the world today. And if we don't, that's why I say what Tico is a revelation, but if we don't actually really take in what it's revealing to us, then we're just fated to destroy ourselves. Yeah. How It's like, how often do we see this play out in the mainstream? When you think about like the abuses in the Catholic church, when you think about what went down with Penn State football and the U.S. Right. gymnastics, it's like everyone just turning their blind eye. There's like so many opportunities for just one person, a single individual to end it. And it doesn't. And it goes on for decades and decades. Yeah. Well, and, and I so relate to that. You know, I, I, there are lots more examples, but, you know, because I was in the role in my family system, I was the one who was tracking the evil that was coming through my father. And, you know, but I was the one who, you know, whether because I was smart or stupid, I actually pointed at it and verbalized it. And then I became the identified patient. Everybody saw all oh, the problem is what Paul's saying. If he would only just shut up, everything would be fine. Instead of, oh, I wonder what Paul is pointing at. Mm -hmm. That never occurred to anybody. And that's the deeper pattern. That's the archetypal pattern that we're pointing at. Oh, man. You're giving me goosebumps now, Paul, because just echoes my experience, you know, so so, so profoundly, you know, how quickly evil evil turns to to, to assume the one that's pointing it out is in fact the evil factor, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of that needs to get factored into the equation of how we deal with it, you know? Yeah. And that's what I've been doing. I've been trying to, because I understand more and more that, yeah, the main channel that the mind virus operates is in relationship, is through yeah. the relationship channel. You know, think about it, particularly with what's happening in our in our world the last few years with the pandemic and the vaccine and the war in Ukraine and Trump and Biden and all these things. And then people get polarized. Yeah. And it can break up families. It can break up you know, relationships. And one way of conceiving of that is that, yeah, here are people who are really close and harmonic and connected, and some sort of factor gets into the relationship. And all of a sudden, they misunderstand each other. There's separation, there's conflict, they feel not seen. And next thing you know, they're getting divorced or whatever. And of course, that polarization, you know, the mind virus feeds off of that. You know, and I think of like in the collective works, Young talks about the sickness of our time is a sickness of disassociation. You know, but he points out that encoded in that sickness is like a pregnancy, that something is actually giving, being given birth through us. We are the midwives and the, the thing being born, that's us. That's the higher part of us. And we're the being who's, who's birthing. And, um, but if we don't, if we don't recognize that, you see, the thing that Jung says, he was so tapped into Watiko. You know, I talk about this in my different books. He didn't have the name, but he describes it again and again and again. And he says, the great problem of our time is that we don't have the realization of what's happening in our world. And he clarifies what's happening in our world is we are encountering the darkness of our soul, the darkness of the unconscious, you know, and that's the shamanic descent. Yeah, we are both externally and internally, we're confronting the darkness, the shadow, both personal and archetypal. And it's an incredible invitation to the extent that we have the courage to meet that challenge and to recognize our own darker parts, then we all of a sudden become an agent of light. But if we turn away, you know, then we're unwittingly like a minion of of Watika. Yeah. This is also like one on some level, I just I rejected the notion of like a mass awakening, 
Because there's never going to be a mass or a collective of people that all of a sudden decide to face their shadow and deal with their darkness and, and look this way. You know, this is an individual process, like one person lighting up at a time. Yeah, but I want to say like, and that's absolutely right, but, you know, sort of the hundredth monkey phenomena is the way I think of it is that when there's a sufficient, you know, sort of number of people who are awakening, mm-hmm. um, it can it can change the whole collective consciousness of mm-hmm. our species, you know, yeah. and I really see that, you know, as potentially available to us as a species, you know, and but but so many of us are awakening and we're sort of fragmented and we're isolated. And what I see is. Yeah, when we come together with other people, it's like the whole community that's formed around, you know, my work for 30 years, you know, there are these groups where they're not the ordinary groups where, you know, we actually, you know, um, trigger each other or get into our stuff and share and support. But the idea is we slowly, slowly, and there were people in the groups for 25 years or 20 years, and it's a weekly group. And but the idea is we get in sync in a certain way where we discover we can activate like this genius, the collective genius that's in the field that that none of us could do by ourselves, you know. And it's what I call we can in a real way, we can dream ourselves awake, and that's profound, you know. Where like one person can have this lucidity, and yeah, you know, that's not hard to do in a night dream or in a waking dream. But then it's easy to just forget and get absorbed back in the dream. But then when you stabilize that lucidity and then you connect with other people who also are having this lucid, you know, moment or lucid, you know, awareness, and you connect through that shared open heart of lucid awareness, and you more and more connect with other people who are also realizing that, it creates an enormous psychoactivating field, you know, where we can actually help each other to deepen and stabilize our awakening. And that can go viral. And yeah. just like, oh, the seeming, you know, coronavirus is like contagious. What I'm talking about is that the antidote where we awaken and connect with other people who are awakening, that can go viral. And then all bets are off. Yeah, I feel, I feel you there. Yeah. yeah. I got a, a quick question, Paul. I'm curious because you, you've had a community for so long. Did you experience a lot of polarization even within your community or oh, things maybe that were going on the last few years and things were getting a lot more polarized politically, et cetera? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. People see the thing, which is so weird. Like I, um, for most of my life, I identified politically as like a liberal left Democrat progressive. And, and I no longer do. I mean, I've been horrified what the left is now kind of like a proponent for, but um, in my groups, absolutely, there there has been polarization. People who, for my lifetime, I would have known where they stood on an issue, all of a sudden, no, they drank the Kool Aid. They're like doing this or thinking that, and yeah, and it's funny because, you know, I'm fortunate in that some of my closest friends, I'm able to really, you know whatever, just track what's happening and express whatever and trip out on anything. But then a lot of my close friends, I've had to learn, oh, there, there's these like, you know, these no fly zones, these don't go there zones. Oh, I yeah. can't talk about the vaccine. I can't talk about Trump. I can't talk about Tucker Carlson. I can't talk about the war in Ukraine. I can't talk about Putin. You know, I can't talk about Biden. And I, I've learned it's a, it's a skill I think all of us have developed. Each person has a different don't go yeah. there zone. And because the cost is too much. If I bring up, oh, well, like, gee, like Kennedy said this, 
And like, and if I say that to somebody who's under the spell of like, oh, you know, that Kennedy is like an anti-vaxxer and crazy, then it's not worth the cost. It's just unproductive. There's no, you see, there's no dialoguing with people who've been taken over, you know, by the darker forces of their unconscious. And then the question is, well, what do you do? How do you navigate that? And I'm still a work in progress trying to figure that one out, you know? Same here. Same here, man. Yeah, yeah, totally. Hmm. Yeah, I think it it feels like the intensity is lessening and through this extreme polarization, people are beginning to hold space for more nuance in terms of, you know, differing ideas. I feel like we're kind of coming out of the the, the deep intensity of it now is just my feel. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm happy to hear you say that. I don't necessarily agree when I hear, oh, the intensity is lessening. Mm -hmm. Because for me, I I think of it in terms of like the pressure in the alchemical vessel of the the human psyche is like getting so, you know, intense and the, the, you know, the, the tension, the creative tension of the opposites, you know, is just, you know, more and more just getting intense. And the idea is instead of just splitting and dissociating, you know, and identifying with one of the opposites at the expense of the other, which is to create a dis-ease in our soul, to have to somehow have the strength or whatever it is to hold that creative tension, you know, without that, you know, splitting and disassociating. And this symbol, and Jung taught me this, is Christ on the cross, that when seen symbolically, that's completely what, you know, symbolically he's representing. And then Jung says, out of that, if you hold that creative tension with integrity comes what he calls the transcendent function was one word for it, you know, some, like some form of grace, some form of revelation. And what I'm pointing out again and again is that in dark times like this, and this is just seen in an individual psyche, when somebody's really at the edge of their process or in a corner, a double bound, no win situation. So often that's when all of a sudden they have lucidity. And in the same way, we as a species are in that state of, you know, we're like right at the edge of, of the cliff where we, are we going to destroy ourselves? And I'm pointing out, yeah, the deeper dreaming psyche that's informing this whole universe, you know, you could call it God or a true nature, whatever that, you know, the compensation, just like dreams are a compensation of a one-sided attitude. The compensation is that there's like revelation and it's happening this universe and particularly around Watiko which if we don't recognize it as revelation will absolutely kill us. But if we, re- if enough of us recognize that it's revealing something in us that it's most important to know, then all of a sudden, then we've expanded our consciousness. And that's the whole point of why we, we've dreamed up Watiko is to awaken us, but we need to participate in the revelation of adding consciousness to that. That's what my whole work is about. Well said, Paul. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Like, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's so nice to connect with you. Um, I, I resonate and align with so much of what you said. And um, can you just share with our audience, um, you know, how they can find you, how they can buy your books and get connected to you? Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. And um, so I'm hoping, you know, I, I mean, my books are available at bookstores and Amazon, but also if the way to remember, if people want to um, awaken in the dream, just go to awakenindthedream.com. That's my website. And um, there's a ton of articles all for free. You know, it's not it's not monetized. Like, you know, there's no paywall because this information is medicine and I just want to share it and get it out. 
I mean, yeah, people can buy autographed copies of my books or book a session, but everything else is totally free. And there's a ton of interviews just like this on there that I've done over years and years. And um, yeah, so if people are interested, just to go to awakenindhedream.com. Awesome. Great. We'll have it. We'll have it in our show notes. Yeah. Paul, so nice to connect. Appreciate your time. And everyone else, thank you for listening. Take care. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Smoking mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms because they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward and never lose.